record welcome back to the channel guys i'm joined today by Aaron and by stefan or charlie brown i've had both of these gentlemen on i do recommend the earlier episodes and i'm very happy to be able to bring them together digitally um Aaron is back from his Mannheim talk that's what i would like to lead off with uh, so please let us know how was it to speak in front of people to be there uh, to meet Stefan as well. I'm very curious. Right. Uh, yeah. Thank you for having me back on. I very much appreciate it. And it's also, Stefan, it's lovely to see you again. I, I, it was also like you, you for uh, for other people who might be viewing, it was kind of funny because, um, you know, <laughs> Lucas and I have had this conversation and there was like just this one guy who left like multiple comments underneath our video, you know, underneath our conversation. So I was like, Oh, cool. You know, someone's actually engaging with this. And and then all of a sudden, you know, I got to the conference and I met Stefan. And he was like, I'm the one who commented on the video, you know. So I was like, oh, that's you. No way. So it was it was amazing for me to just like kind of figure out who this this person was who was apparently interested in these two brothers uh, talking about Nietzsche and and, and such and, and, and other stuff. Um, and then I think finding out like, especially, I mean, Obviously, the the most obvious connection for all of us is is this little corner. That's 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 the most important connection. But then on the side there, finding out the Nietzsche and 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 Goethe kind of connection was also very interesting. So I sh that that's just as a preface. The talk itself, um, yeah, I was very uh, like. By the way, I was I was flattered by what 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 you said about me in the last episode, Stefan. I uh, very much appreciated that. Um, but I I think. I was actually I was a bit nervous beforehand, um, specifically because I've been like teaching um, Nietzsche also for like let's say a couple of years now, and even the same week I had done a Nietzsche lecture, but I was kind of confronted on the fact by uh, by uh, my girlfriend and my, my dad, and they were like, you know, like this is not you know a, a course, you know, it, it's it's not like they're gonna need those PowerPoint slides with lots of text to prepare for their exams or for their paper. So you might as well just keep it simple. And that all of a sudden I was like, yeah, they're right. Actually, I don't need text on slides, but I'm also not actually used to like presenting without. Um, but I really try to narrow it down as much as possible just to picture. So then you have like uh, a useful visualization. And then that's also because I really, I try to focus, um, like I, I, try, I try to really tie it into the, theme where it's not just about you know these systematic ideas because if we've looked at the evolution of this little corner it's kind of like oh you know this these cool ideas that this weird you know peterson fella with if Fervaki fella and peugeot fella like are introducing but it's actually like no we're getting to know each other and and now like through the years the ideas are still important but much more so as let's say uh an environment in which we can then um get to know each other as, as people, you know, in which we can have personhood. Um, and that's why I wanted to focus on, okay, we've discussed Nietzsche's ideas quite often, I'd say, like at least from, uh, you know, every now and then he's brought up by someone like Peterson. Um, he's brought up very rarely, but sometimes by Fiveki is also in the series and also very rarely, but sometimes by Peugeot. And I was like, let's just focus on who he was first to just contextualize it because that's what this is about for all of us, you know, to really, to not just zero in on, you know, what do we have to say when we come to this, but also what is our story? Like, how did we get 
to caring about these ideas. And I think with that's also, I guess, what I tried to do in my um, uh, in my in my own research with Nietzsche. I think it's especially appropriate, and maybe also with Goethe, we can talk about that in a little bit. Um, but because he is also like, you know, it's it's not about these abstract ideas. Like, it's much more interesting to ask yourself the question, like, why are they writing them? Like, who is writing it? Like, what are they trying to to prove? You know, like, and 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 why would that matter? So, um, I started off with talking about his life. Then I started off with talking about that in light of what we know about his life, about what he wrote himself, his personal letters, you know, like how do we then look at his ideas? And then to sort of combine that into like, so what could be his place in this little corner and something to talk about? And even though I was nervous at the start because the format was kind of new for me, um, I just asked the question to Paul during because it was like, it could be interesting to compare, you know, Nietzsche being the son of a pastor uh, to Paul and what that was like and I think that got me a little bit more relaxed and everyone was just super attentive so it was I really appreciated how how much everyone was listening and that's also like I actually had to rush through time at the end like I would have loved to have more time but um, but that's why we have these types of conversations so it was just kind of a, a I think a good pitch and I think it ended up tying in very well with uh, some of the other themes that were discussed actually during the day. So uh, opponent processing was already brought up. The balance between the masculine and the feminine was brought up. So there were all these elements that allowed for the presentation to have a much, much better uh, place than I uh, actually would have even hoped for sort of at first. So I'm very thankful for that. And I think it went well, but that's like, I have to re-listen to it myself, you know, like I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know, um, but I was happy with it and, and I was happy with the reception. So, sorry, long story, but that's it. We like the long stories around here. So thank you for for sharing that. I'm really, I told Aaron offline already that I'm looking forward to watching it myself. I haven't watched it at all. So <laughs> that'll be very exciting. Um, I, I brought you two guys together. Well, actually, I think you guys brought yourselves together here. Um, and I'm the the mediator, I guess, um, because I think there's a lot of interesting things to discuss with both of your backgrounds. And I feel Aaron is kind of representing bit Nietzsche's ideas. Stefan is a bit like representing Goethe's ideas. And I'd like to get those two talking to each other a little bit. And one thing I was thinking about was how both of these people would have responded to the modern age i'd be very curious if you guys have any insights what you think how they would <laughs> how they would look at our problems how, how <laughs> like for example they would respond to all these phenomena um this is very hard to do but i think it is a fun exercise to do nonetheless it also can give me a bit more of an insight into who these figures are because i know so much less than you two so i'd like to give stefan an opportunity to, to say a bit more about oh, Goethe and perhaps that. That's, that's a great question. And, and it's a wonderful pitch to actually start to begin with Goethe. Um, and I would like to tie it to the way that Aaron framed his Nietzsche talk, is that you can't understand Goethe when you read a poem from him or, or a play from him. That's just a piece of art and it stands for itself true and it's brilliant absolutely <clears throat> but once you start looking into his biography that's when all the lights you know turn on and once you realize 
how he's set in his own history in the historical movements that were taking place between his birth and his death it's insane it's absolutely insane he was an observer observer of the french revolution he was an observer of the end of the roman empire of the german nation uh, and uh, the accords of, of vienna in 1850 just, just, just the holy roman empire right yeah, the holy roman yeah, yeah, okay, empire yeah. of german nation right yeah. and uh, i mean he saw that and his first play that made him famous was the Götz von berlichen and in Götz von berlichen he depicts this old knight figure Götz von berlichen not as someone running against other you know feudal systems but against modernity itself because the the uh, king or the, the the emperor that he has to you know um, follow he's now surrounded by all these bureaucrats and the judges and the lawyers and they you know dissect everything into oh how can we turn that into another rule or you know another procedure and he's still this very masculine figure from the old age trying to you know get through it and in the end he dies and that's that's just the logical conclusion of the whole of the whole play is that this old type of masculine power dies in the new bureaucratic system it it, it can't survive which is funny because if you look further into goethe's biography he became part of the bureaucracy of uh, the duke of uh, karl august of, of weimar saxony he was the privy councillor to him and that's just such an interesting twist because, okay, you start with that play and then you actually go exactly in that direction, which says already a lot about the openness that Goethe essentially had. He was open to everything and anything at any time. Uh, he, he, nothing was uh, sacred to him in that sense. And um, <clears throat> at the end of his life, which is also interesting, he wrote a poem um, and that's it's just such a funny story. I think he was 79 and he proposed to marry a 70 year 17 year old girl. And he did not propose directly, but he had his friend, the Duke of Weimar, Karl August, propose to the mother of that girl, and she friendly declined. And so he was absolutely shattered by it. And he wrote one of the most beautiful. Uh, poems uh, that he ever wrote it's the Marienbad elegies and he basically writes all the the emotions that he has at the loss of his love he writes during he, he started writing that poem while he was riding uh, home back from the hotel where he had stayed and the girl had stayed and he had tried to propose to her and in that poem he says all that the Gods have given their favors, their favorites. I have received the good and the suffering, all of it. So if you look at that, <clears throat> I think it ties pretty well into why Nietzsche would see in him this Übermensch figure, because Goethe did not shy away from experiences that, you know, caused intense suffering for him. But at the same time, he also experienced all the joy possible in a human life. And still at the end of his life, he was unsure what to make of it. He had this kind of 
existentialist dread to it at the end of his life. And looking at all his plays and all his 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 writing as well, there's one thing he intentionally always defied, and that was death. If someone were to die or something was to die, he was not going to have it. There's an there's an anecdote from the beginning of his life that I think it was his younger brother, he died. And he did not mourn the death. He was around seven years old, I guess. He did not mourn the death, but he was um, angry at his mother that now he wasn't able to teach his younger brother what he had already prepared that he was wanting to teach him. Wow. This is this is really, really tough if you look at him. And yeah. then there's an even there's an even stronger anecdote that's his uh wife. I mean, they were in a long relationship out of wedlock and somewhere in time they did get married. But um, so she was sick. She was terminally ill and she was in excruciating pain. And uh, they were in the same house, but he could not stand it. So actually he got sick himself and went to another room and closed his ears. And so she died a few days later in, in the room in, in solitude. And he did not even go to the uh, to the burial ceremony. And at the same day that his wife had died, and I mean, he suffered. He immensely suffered. And he did that as well when when his his children died. Um, there were some kids that died. And, and, and he wrote to Schiller and, and he had experiences of that suffering as well. But generally, he, he took tried to stay away from it wherever possible. And at the same time, that is, at the same day his wife died, he has this in his diary, he says, Okay, wife dies at 12 uh, a.m. Um, in the afternoon, preparations for some laboratory experiments. In the night, going for a walk. Something like that. And it's like, what on earth is going on with this man? Yeah. This, is, this is just... <laughs> yeah, so that's... Maybe I should wrap it up then. And, and, and No, see. that's great. That's really good stuff. I, I had no idea about this, <laughs> this side, let's say, to go to... Um, I feel like we're only scratching the surface of your go-to your go-to knowledge. So that's really awesome. I think it's a great way to start it. I don't know, Aaron, do you want to like respond a bit to this or do you want to go into the direction of Nietzsche or what do you think? Well, it's, it, it, um, so so to, just, just to tie it also, because like this was super useful, to yeah. tie it to Lucas' question. So how do you think he would look at our contemporary society, right? Can you, can you just expand on that first? And then maybe can... yeah. If it's an interesting thing to pursue. No, it's, I, um, one thing is he saw it coming. As I've said uh, with his Götz of Berliching and, and the other place, he saw that coming already. He also saw the extremes of this emotional, uh, solipsistic romanticism that would uh, be a result as a reaction to modernity. He saw that in his uh, Werther, the, young, the Sorrows of Young Werther. Right. And he was disappointed by the reaction of the public to that work, actually, because he thought he had made it abundantly clear that that was a kind of extreme form of satire. Right. That, that, that people should see this is what happens if you go into that direction at the extreme. But then it turned out to be like this kind of trend. It was, a, it, you know, the people were wearing exactly the clothes that Goethe had described Werther was wearing. And 
There, I mean, it's not un, it's not totally clear, but there seems to be some uh, base for the for the information that actually there were a lot of suicides surrounding uh, the reading of of the the Verta, and it was mostly male people between twenty and twenty four, something like that. And so, story goes that there were thousands of suicides in Europe because of that. And of course, he he was not very happy with that, but. I mean, what do you do when something like that happens? You create another um, epoch. It's like he had the Storm and Stress epoch. He founded that with Götz von Berliching. Then he had Romanticism with Werther. And then he said, well, let's do Classicism. <laughs> that's what you do next, don't you? So um, so that's the one side. He saw many things coming already. And if you think about his most important work, the the, the Faust, which consists of two parts, mostly you only know the first part with the Gretchen uh, allegory, but actually the second part is much more important because there he clearly lays out all the things happening in modernity. Um, and he wrote that at a later stage, but his initial ideas he already had like in the 1760s, 1770s, and from then on, he started working on it continuously. And I think the Goethe two, the Faust II was actually only published after his death. So there was the part one that was published before that, and the part two was only published afterwards. And so I, I think he realized already that he was not part of, of that modernity itself any longer. But he saw it, he had a prophetic vision of what was to come. Mm. And he wrote that into his work. And since he, I think in, in a sense, he knew that what was going to um, remain in time was his work. So from the beginning on, he was very careful in preparing his own profile. So there were, there are like, 20,000 letters to him that are still available, but most of the letters that he wrote, he destroyed. Mm. No, the other way around. The other way around. Right. Ah. Right. So most of the stuff that he wrote, he carefully chose to keep, but the letters he received, he mostly destroyed. Mm. And he did that with like every person that he loved and that he had a relationship with. If at all, there's just like one or two letters available from them. And you can only hint that there had been letters because he writes in other letters, oh, I'm sorry, I wrote that in that letter. And maybe we should, you know, we should just keep it as it is and um, I'll be fine and whatever. So it's oh. really interesting that he already did this profile curation right. uh, and a lot of auto da fe destruction, yeah. stuff that did not fit into this frame, which makes him, I think, an extremely modern figure already. Wait, so, so, so I have a question because like I, I know that I totally agree with with what you just said about, um, or at least from what I know, right? Like, but it it sounds like it makes a lot of sense that he wrote uh, the Sorrows of Young Werther as kind of like you know just this uh, almost like okay, just be aware this is where this kind of life leads. And you know the the great thing about um, Goethe is like also because he's a great artist, you know that it's also in the form. So like I think uh, that that book is like it's an epistolary novel, right? So it's mostly through letters from the young Werther himself. And I think that's so interesting that on the one hand, he said, you know, this is not the life you should lead. And at the same time, the form remains constant that he is actually, that 
that what he decides to do is just keep his own letters even though like i think like in the reading of of young young Werther, you you get the sense that part of the form there of just reading his letters is kind of part of the problem right like you're only reading his thoughts it's, it's only it's only him and that's actually part of the problem that he's like very much uh self-obsessed by the way like i have lots of criticisms of, of nietzsche so uh, so if you're uncomfortable with me potentially criticizing goethe or just let me know but but for me it's always like you know i i love these people and 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 i'm full of criticisms of them so i'm curious do you think of that as something he did on purpose or is that just like sort of a weakness that he decided to also in that same way just be like i'm going to be this person who is you're only going to read my letters not the response to it you're just going to read me and therefore yes i am inspiring people to kill themselves <laughs> okay i don't i don't know because uh, at least with regards to the the young werther the source of the young werther if yeah. if you're familiar with Rousseau, Rousseau wrote an epistolary novel julie or the nouvelle eloise and that basically is the blueprint for Goethe's Werther. Because it's also in this letter form. And at the end of Eloise, Eloise dies. And at the end of Werther, Werther dies. So this is there's a really interesting connection between Goethe and Rousseau as well. And it goes so far, actually, that Goethe literally imitates Rousseau while he's in Italy. Um, if you if you've read or heard of Carl Truman, um, he he did this 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 book about yeah uh, okay so you yeah I, like it it's about the self right and about yeah. uh yeah yeah basically yeah. about the invention of the secret sacred self in modernity and yeah, yeah. Uh, where Rousseau ties in and there's this scene that he, um, Truman uh, relates to where Rousseau is in Italy and he has first contact with a prostitute i think it is in venice and there rousseau finally realizes what was wrong with him all the time and um, goethe has that experience as well with the woman he finally calls faustina in rome and so he goes to rome as well he goes to italy he has sexual experience there he comes back as a new man as did Rousseau when he returned from, from Italy. And so there's a lot of imitation going on there. And in that sense, if someone imitated Werther, Goethe must have had some kind of expectation about that already because he was imitating Rousseau himself while writing that letter or writing writing the novel. Mm -hmm. So I think there's maybe that's part of an explanation. Right, right. No, it's great. Okay, um, that's super informative. Okay, I'm. I'm. Sh should I talk talk a little bit about Nietzsche, Lucas? Like that's about, good. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. So, like, obviously, the the question with someone. So, so, just like while you were talking about Goethe, I was like, okay, now I'm. I can totally see why Nietzsche loved Goethe so much, and I can also also just already just state very bluntly, like. Goethe was like a great individual, like he was a, a great man, and obviously, like you know, they also have all great men have their have, have their their flaws. Um, but Nietzsche was great in his writing, and he was fairly pathetic, you know, in in his life, and just in the sense, like not not just like pathetic, like you know, but just kind of sad, you know, that you just kind of you know you 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 would have wanted more for him, but but he didn't really get much out of it, even though he probably. 
he did live in gorgeous places. So he also ended up, but that was for the sake of his health. He ended up traveling a lot, living in different places uh, for his um, re respiratory um, health, mostly that he lived, you know, in Switzerland and in Italy and in France, uh, all these gorgeous locations. Um, having said that, I, like, I don't think he lived a great life. And in terms of like, okay, his influence or, or like, how would he have looked at our time today? It's really hard to say because so much of it is also anticipated by him and partially also influenced by him, right? So it's, it's, it's difficult to say. So like, so what Stefan said about uh, Goethe and uh, young Werther and then influencing people to commit suicide in that same sense, you could, or in a, in a different way, but similarly, um, you could argue, you know, that uh, some of Nietzsche's writing have, have been taken by the, the Nazis and, you know, have precisely taken the the the, the wrong <laughs> teachings from it and then and then preferred it. At the same time, there's also something to be said, and that's why we should always be critical, like, okay, yes, but there is something in there which lends itself to that. And that is always, you know, something we should be super uh, very much aware of. However, you know, if we look at the work as a whole and the person as a whole, then for instance, in the person of Nietzsche, it's clear that he was very much anti-anti-Semitic because he thought it was just a pathetic kind of resentment-driven life. Um, so he would have uh, despised that. But having said that, like there are, there are also elements in Nietzsche and also in Goethe, obviously, who was also in some sense, um, we should say it, he, I, I think... He was also accused of inspiring that, you know, romantic nationalist movement that ended up inspiring the 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 Nazis in some ways. But we can talk about that a little, um, little bit later. Um, but that was, you know, that, uh, and and that's that you can see an inspiration that he also influenced or at least contributed or made it facilitated. You know, you don't want to make it too strong because this possibly also would have happened, you know, without these individuals, but they do facilitate it in, in some ways because they were used in some ways by these individuals or by these movements. Um, so having said that, like, you can see that with, 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 with Nazism in a different way, you can see someone like Nietzsche uh, anticipating someone like Freud with looking at like, okay, you know, it's about our deeper intentions that are not transparent to ourselves. Uh, and we should be aware of that. You could see him foreshadowing someone like Foucault who was like okay what's actually interesting if we look at the history of uh, societies is, is not to look at you know these specific individuals and, and 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 what we've written about it but just look at like what are actually the 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 underlying power dynamics at play which actually still inform our relationship today and therefore that behind certain concepts that or certain values we have there might actually be power relations at play and that's obviously became very Foucauldian and he was concerned about uh the thing that Rousseau had inspired which was kind of like just no you know this 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 romantic back to nature which he actually appreciated in Goethe but he hated it in Rousseau it's kind of very interesting we could talk about that uh because for Rousseau, he really thought of it as like, you know, just getting away from this life because this life is too difficult and therefore imagining this uh, this other world. Um, and there, and in that sense, he that inspired sort of the revolution, but it was from also this sense of resentment, you know, like this resentment against the um, the, the society at large, against the people who were, who were ruling. And he found that, you know, profoundly associated then in, in socialism. So he says like socialism, you know, there... You know, they're they're in some ways under the guise of these 
this Rousseauian spirit, uh, which is very resentment driven. So even though he didn't know the works of Marx, he could have anticipated that something like that would eventually ended up in just a huge chaos. So my, my point is, it's super difficult, I think, to really argue what Nietzsche would say of today, because so much of it he anticipated. So he would have just like said, like, told you, you know, like that would happen. At the same time, there is something to be said for the fact that he was still arguing against the the last remainder of, let's say, uh, Christian dominance, you know? So, it, because, you know, he was the one who announced that God is dead and he said, oh, but people don't know it yet. And it will be interesting to, to, to see because he also writes, um, I think in, uh, well, it's actually in his unpublished fragments, but it ends up being published in the Will to Power um, by his sister. Um, but he said, like, what I'm relating here is the history of the next 200 years, right? And he, he says that in uh, 1880, so that's still 50 years from now, or a little bit more, like 56, 57 to be precise. So it's it's hard to, to see because maybe he's like, you know, this process is still ongoing. Um, I think he, I would be very interested to know what he would have thought of some of these like healthist cultures, you know, these people going online and 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 like if, if i can be so frank kind of like the start of your own channel lucas you know like kind of just to just to to uh i'm not saying there's anything the huberman wrong. yeah like the 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 the, the huberman exactly the andrew huberman kind of uh corner of this which 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 you uh coined i think in a very lovely way but i'm curious what he would have thought of that because at the same time there's also something about that which is not the positive self-evaluation that we that he would have liked and is much more like, you know, is still sharing with other people and still like uh, relating yourself to, for instance, uh, an Excel file with how many calories have you eaten today? And, 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 and it, it still has all these problems, which actually he would have related to asceticism and is not like the fullness of life, but is also keeping yourself from it. So I, I don't know at the, problem with Nietzsche is he was just messed up you know like he ended up being so profoundly confused about so many things the end that he ended up turning insane so I would also need to know like okay which Nietzsche are we talking about are we talking about early Nietzsche middle Nietzsche late Nietzsche and you probably have the same a little bit with Goethe um, but I think for many cases he would have said like right yes I I thought this was going to happen <laughs> I don't think it would have been surprised by what was going to happen yeah. I would also be curious as a final thing you know, how would he look at this reemergence of Christianity that is happening in this little corner? Would he think of us as being like, you know, life denying, or is this actually the pure Christianity that he, that like you, you've 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 seen my writing about this, Lucas? Uh, you know, the pure Christianity that he, that he so appreciated, and does it does this actually have an opportunity to maybe integrate the Nietzschean criticism, but mostly to value like the. The, the the pureness that was at the heart of Christ's uh, life and the Christ's mes message, you know, which he mm -hmm. also traced in the Antichrist, ironically. So I I mostly have questions, not so much like statements, you know, this is what he Oh, that's doing. great. I mean, it's it's very much in line with his uh, volatile thoughts about the world <laughs> that you have all these questions. So yeah, I think they're, I think they're very fun to explore. Uh, Stefan, do you have any comments thus far about what yeah, I want to say? That was that was extremely helpful and clarifying for me because I think in that sense you could actually put uh, Goethe on the opposite of that, 
in a sense that Goethe was always very open to anything that involved change, uh, evolution. So he had this sense of fluidity to identity that is a very modern concept in that sense and that we are currently struggling with that mm -hmm. things seem to have gone off the rails and become absolutely fluid without any polarity any longer and i'm not quite sure whether goethe would have had any trouble with that mm -hmm. because he was so flexible in his thinking and in his behavior and he wasn't afraid of you know stepping into any possible situation he pu he pushed himself actually to 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 move in situations that were uncomfortable for him because he he realized he could learn something out of that and that would assist him in evolving and there's there's reason actually to think that he was one of the forethinkers of of evolution theory before darwin as well so there's a connection there mm -hmm. um and I wanted to to add this um, to your interest, Aaron, uh, Goethe's Allegories of Identity by Jane Brown. It's a phenomenal book, and I'm just going to read the blurb. A century before psychoanalytic discourse codified a scientific language to describe the landscape of the mind, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe explored the paradoxes of an interior self separate from a conscious self. Though long acknowledged by the developers of depth psychology and by its historians, Goethe's literary rendering of an interiority has not been the subject of detailed analysis in itself. And she goes lengths at actually explaining the work of Goethe being the link between Rousseau and Freud. Mm -hmm. Right. So in a sense, he was the stepping stone for many of those that were to come after him. And Freud, of course, he was an absolutely, he was a Goethe fan. He was a Goethe fanboy, and he received himself for his work the Goethe Prize. So you can see there's already a lot of connections there with, with Goethe and Freud and, and all the psychoanalysis that's taking place. And indeed, if you look at many of his works, what happens is that the, 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 the main actors don't act in a sense that it's participation in the scene, but they turn to themselves and they have this interior view of things. And so there's there's a lot of thing uh, an analytical drama taking place. Yeah, and one of the most famous works for that is actually I think uh, Goethe's Iphigenia uh, of Taurus, which is you could say a profoundly anti-Christian play. Because Iphigenia does not sacrifice herself, but actually says if the gods exist, they beat within my chest. And so what happens is she's being taken back to the court and doesn't have to sacrifice herself. So it's a very subversive uh, re-messaging of the Christian uh, right. story. But this is also like, so that does seem like in that sense, he went partially inspired it, but also went along a little bit with his time, you know, was this the the whole romantic movement was about this focus on um feeling as opposed to the intellect you know and and about and even someone like uh Feuerbach who who Marx actually took a lot from but Feuerbach who argued that you know what 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 we think of as god is actually just this projection 
of you know this inadequacy that we're feeling and by projecting this god outside of ourselves we're actually keeping ourselves from you know getting this human potential so like i totally see that there's like this is in the air right it's 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 it's, it's happening all around and and i i do also think i can also make a link to freud a little bit because freud actually argued that he had never read nietzsche to get his, at his own work so it might indeed be that uh that he was less influenced by that he did also say about nietzsche when he did read him like oh this is probably the man who knew himself best in all of history so that's kind of interesting you know that he he thought so of nietzsche and uh obviously freud did have relations with uh lou andreas salome who i talked at uh, about at the during the talk who was in a very personal relationship with nietzsche who um you know got to know his mind got to know his works and actually became a psychoanalytic thinker herself so it's also like possible that that through that there is a little bit of a connection but i've also like once heard uh i think raymond goyce like he he mentioned like okay the the comment of freud saying say, saying he hasn't read nietzsche is a little bit of you know like a political theorist today saying you know they haven't read rawls and you might not know rawls but rawls is a very prominent political thinker it's like it's like he's like the the, the main sided person it's kind of like and the reason why he made that final exam on on rolls actually okay right so, yes, <laughs> so, so you wrong. know exactly what this is about uh, but but you but just you see the comparisons kind of yeah you like you might not read him but he is like just in the environment like the whole academia soaked him up at that point so i i think it's very yeah it's it's it, it, it's hard to say where the connection is actually coming from but i do definitely think and that's why like something that goethe and nietzsche just share so profoundly is just their you know, that struggle in romanticism, like they're both so romantic and both anti-romantic at the same time, you know, like they're both, you, you, you could see it like, and which is also why they're, why they're great because like, because they're, they're aware of the limitations of romanticism. And at the same time, they're also, you know, their whole style fits the whole romantic movement. So, so it's, yeah, I, I find that a very interesting uh, parallel. Which is why you have to be careful when you're reading Goethe's works not to fall into the trap of thinking that you know that this figure is actually what Goethe intended to tell us of that play. It's like, no, maybe he's not Faust. Maybe he's Mephistopheles. Or maybe he's Gretchen. Maybe he's all of them. Yeah. And Goethe would say, yes, of course, I'm. it's obvious that it, it's, it runs through everything. Yeah, And so he was... He had this knack of being able to just have hold a position opposite to himself. Yeah. Just for the sake of having this polarity. Yeah. Because he believed that this kind of polarity created the forces that made it possible to transform something or to evolve. Yeah. And so I also like that opponent processing. Yeah. So so he, he deliberately enjoyed setting things against each other and see how that plays out. Right. Um, and he does that in an, in 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 a brilliant play as well in the Wahlverwandtschaft the the what's it called in English the elective I have to look it up but it's basically two married couples in a setting where they're together on a weekend and let's see what plays out and it's fascinating that at the end you know these couples switch and then you know there's there's suicide and all that kind of stuff so so all those traditional marriage ideas they derail completely in that place yeah no, and I, you think is that is that what Goethe was thinking about marriage and i would say no he's really experimenting with things 
and trying to think them to their logical conclusion. What could happen if? And he enjoys that. Yeah, and 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 so I'm not sure if this is like if this is also in the air or if Nietzsche is inspired by this, but that was kind of also my point with you know like that Nietzsche, Apollo and Dionysus and yeah. the crucified and uh, and Dionysus, but also like he sometimes says Buddha versus the crucified. So like there's all these. He actually says at some point like I just love antagonisms. I just I, I he, he I think at some point he reflects on the fact that he is he feels so lonely since he is since his relationship with uh, his 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 friendly relationship with 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 Wagner is over and he says like and it's not even that i'm annoyed with the fact that we now stand opposed to each other i actually love opposition it's just that i'm lonely you know like he just clarifies that and and i think there's also something to be said that that's what nietzsche really appreciated in dostoevsky you know like that he saw that dostoevsky was able to battle it out against these like just these opposing characters so um i think that's very important for them both Goethe and Nietzsche to not just be like okay because like they're in that sense they're both actually and I I wanted to respond to that Nietzsche is also pro fluidity like he's not against he doesn't want stable identities like he's he's very very concerned with that and that's also why he so appreciated someone like Jesus because he was like Jesus was against everything that was fixed you know like he was he was constantly just like in flow but like more in 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 the Tao sense. The problem with obviously today is that people think that you know a fluid identity is something that they can just you know decide, uh, and that's that that's something very different. Um, so I'm not sure if he would appreciate it that part, but I definitely see parallels there, and it's and like the difference in how we're approaching it now is that Nietzsche read so much of Goethe, and obviously Goethe had no clue who Nietzsche was, so that's also why I think like it's obvious that Nietzsche was so much more influenced by Goethe than the other way around. Um, but yeah, I see a lot of interesting stuff, and this is clarifying a lot for me, which I'm definitely gonna use. Lucas, did you have any like any uh, questions right up till now? I'm not sure if we're well, still your. <laughs> there's no plan. I just I figured if I get like a couple of things going, then you will take it and run, and that's exactly what happened. So I'm very pleased with that. I was wondering as you were speaking, you said that. Nietzsche was very influenced by Goethe. So maybe this is a hard question to even begin to think about because you can't really split him from, from Goethe. But maybe for Stefan, how do you think Goethe would have looked at someone like, like Nietzsche and his ideas? Do, do you think that, like, how do you think he would have? <laughs> he would have entertained any thought that was, pre what was presented to him. Okay. Uh, that's, that's the short answer because he was so literate and well well-versed in everything at mm. his time he, he was his father was was wealthy he did not have to work he was very well educated himself and so what he did was he he educated Goethe the best possible way so at the age of seven already and then later on he spoke latin and hebrew and french and italian and so he learned the bible in hebrew he read it and he could, you know, recite it by heart. And the same with all the Greek and the Roman classics. So there's already a lot of groundwork that's, you know, being done there. So Goethe can relate to everything at any point in time. Well, um, I, I do have one, one quick question about that. Yeah. Uh, because I once heard an anecdote and I'm not sure if it's true. So you can correct me. But that Hegel, <laughs> once he, he finished his... Uh, uh, Phenomenologie des Geistes, so it's Phenomenology of Spirit, I think he actually showed it to Goethe, like, it was like, what do you think of it? And the Goethe was like, 
I can't understand this, you know, like, which makes a lot of sense because no one could understand Hegel. So like, I'm not saying Goethe was a dumbass for not understanding it, but I am saying that uh, Hegel would later become like, you know, a very prominent, uh, important thinker. And, you know, when he first released, everyone was like, what the, what the hell is this? Mm -hmm. Including Goethe. So I'm curious, how do you look at that? Like that he wasn't, uh, if that is true, by the way, if that anecdote. I, I haven't read that anecdote, but I would, it seems to me to be plausible. Uh, for the mere fact that Goethe, as privy councillor, was responsible for the universities in Weimar Saxony, mm -hmm. and uh, for example, responsible for who got the professorships at at the University of Jena. Mm -hmm. So, at the request of Schiller, he actually got Fichte uh, a professorship in Jena. Right, and mm -hmm. and so there's, there's there's this direct connection between them. And Goethe was, uh, I mean, he was a contemporary of Kant. Uh, and and uh, he read uh, the works of 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 him as well, and mm -hmm. with and so he was very open to to new ideas. And and there's this magnificent book, uh, magnificent, funny, because Andrea Wolf uh, titled the book "Magnificent Rebels," about the so-called Jena set. And the Jena set was a bunch of people living at the same time in Jena. Yeah. Um, and it was uh, Schelling, uh, the Schlegel brothers. It was uh, Fichte, it was Schiller, it was Goethe. So this, by the way, a colleague, a colleague of mine is like totally focused on precisely like that moment in history, those people. Yeah. yeah. So I think, it, and, and later on, um, he wrote the, the Far Eastern Divan, the Fernöstliche Divan, where mm. he, you know, is so open to also include Islam and Eastern thought into his own thinking, translate things, poeticize them as well. So he had an extreme openness to any idea, and I, I and and he was also, um, I think, Schopenhauer knew him personally as well. Really? Yeah. Huh. So there's there's a there's a direct connection between them as well. It's like okay, you know, Goethe, of course, Goethe knows everyone else, and can I talk to him? Yeah, sure, let's talk. So <laughs> they probably met and you know mixed up. Uh, at several times in their lives, and That's so I would I would think that if Goethe were to meet Nietzsche, he would have listened to him, he mm -hmm. would have enjoyed it, and at the end of it, maybe he read something of Nietzsche, and then he makes up something totally different and says, "That's my take on it." Right. Mm. He read Spinoza, but he was very careful to say, I don't think Spinoza would agree with what I'm putting into him because it's my personal interpretation of him. But it works for me and it's wonderful, so I'm going to stick to that. And he would have done the same probably with Nietzsche and said, you know, this is really, he's a brilliant thinker and I love him and maybe, yeah, I take that idea and so I'm a Nietzschean. Yeah. But just for the sake of being able to, you know, have the position of Nietzsche without actually being his own position. Right, yeah. By the way, I was just looking for the anecdotes and I couldn't quickly find it. So um I just wanna be aware of the like the, the I just want to make it explicit that it's not actually sure this happened. So it was I, a dream. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Is there is there more that you guys wanna wanna say on this topic specifically? Otherwise I have some directions, but I think it's still quite Quite interesting to pursue if you guys have a question with regards to Nietzsche because I know that Goethe was was really influenced by Spinoza and yeah. the, the natural theology of Spinoza, yeah. which made it very easy for him to 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 
see everything as part of God, basically. Right. You know, to have this pantheist or at least panentheist view of reality made it very easy for him to say, well, you know, the good and the bad, the ugly and the beautiful, that's all just, a, a, you know, a manifestation of God in reality. And so I'm participating in it, which is wonderful. So like deification or, or right, yeah. in, in that sense. How would how would Nietzsche would have approached that question? Yeah, so um, it's interesting. Like Nietzsche, at some point, he discovers Spinoza, and he is like just amazed. But I should already add to this: like there, uh, I, th I think that the most common theory is that Nietzsche did never read Spinoza directly. Like he read it like as like in secondary literature about Spinoza, but he read it and he was like uh whoa that's amazing and, and and he writes to a friend like oh my god i have a precursor like and what a precursor he says you know like i i profoundly relate to spinoza on what is it like about his his judgment on good and evil his judgment about free will and and, and he lists all these things that they agree upon um and it's very interesting like with so many figures including good to some extent but uh less so than with other figures but like with so many figures he actually ends up disagreeing with them later and that's why uh i think already in that first letter where he's so enthusiastic about spinoza he says like you know all the differences that there are between us are just cultural you know like they're there so so I, I can kind of disregard them um but then later on he does think that for instance he actually takes over some concept of spinoza or at least he contrast his own concepts with those of Spinoza. So for instance, Spinoza has the concept of, of the, 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 the conatus, you know, which is kind of like, it's, which it's, it's everything's drive to self-preserve. That's kind of how, how we can understand it. Whereas for Nietzsche, obviously is like, yeah, okay. That sounds very Darwinian almost, uh, you know, like evolution, it wants to preserve itself. He's like, no, that's wrong. Darwin is wrong. Spinoza is wrong. Everything is will to power, you know, like everything wants to expand. Everything wants to, and, and, and he could tell this because like, in some sense, there's all these, he experiences a multitude of personalities, which is also why he was, you know, a proto uh, psychoanalytic thinker in himself that all wanted to have a say, like they all wanted, they didn't just want to be preserved. They all wanted to expand in some ways. And he looked at history as just, you know, like you could see that, um, that, uh, the slave morality, as he called it, you know, like it was kind of being suppressed for s such a long time that it had to work in a different way to eventually dominate again. So he's like, that was also the will to power for, sl for slave morality. Even something like that, which seems to despise power, ends up wanting to be very powerful. Um, so that was his first like major di disagreement with Spinoza. And then another thing, like a, a famous dictum of Spinoza is actually Deo Sive Natura. So it's like, uh, you know, God or nature. And that's what you just, just described is like that God and nature are the same, but conceived of indeed in a panentheist sense. So like, you know, they're, they're eternal and they're absolute and they're necessary. Um, so nature has a far more divine aspects than let's say, how Sam Harris would look at nature, just to uh, give a stupid example. Um, but, and, and Nietzsche actually transforms that and he says, uh, okay, no, it's it's chaos, sive natura, chaos, sive natura. So he's much more, he says like, okay, yes, nature, but it's the same as chaos. So it's like, it's not that when you learn to know nature, you see perfect harmony everywhere, which is kind of what someone like Goethe took also from Spinoza, I think I hear you saying. It's like, no, but you also see chaos and you see a lot of things that actually 
or go against this stability. So that's not, that's another thing. And then finally, Spinoza has this dictum of the amor dei intellectualis, which for him is like, you know, the, the highest thing he wants to achieve, which is the intellectual love of God, which is also why Spinoza has often also been taken in a, in a mystical sense that if you get that, like you, you become truly one with nature, you become one with God. And that's for him, the intellectual love of God. And Nietzsche just takes that too, but he just, he doesn't, he, he changed the Amor Dei to Amor Fati. Like, no, you should love your fate. You know, you should love this life as, as it presents itself to you. So as with so many figures, it's hard to, 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 to see what Nietzsche thought of them himself, but he constantly used something as a way to become, better because that was also consistent with his own philosophy right it's because kind of like okay wow i discovered this great individual like a schopenhauer or like like a spinoza and then later on like no actually they were just full of shit and now i've integrated like the best parts of them but i've transformed it like you know in such a way that i can that i'm now greater than them in that regard he would never he would no never he wouldn't easily say it that way but that's kind of what i take from it so uh, i'm not sure if that's like a like a response to your question, you can kind of see like that he appreciates some elements of it, but other elements, you know, like they're both naturalists, but not naturalists in the same way. So yeah. I really appreciate that. Thanks. That's Good. very helpful because I, I have to admit, I, I haven't read a lot of Nietzsche and I have not read Spinoza at all. Hmm. So I only know of both via Goethe basically <laughs> and the connections between, uh, between the others. Um, yeah. Though I realize that Spinoza is, I think, also very important to understand, at least in part, what is, what are some of the tensions that are in this little corner. Right, yeah. And so it's not just that Vivek is proposing, in a sense, a Spinozist or Spinozan type of religion that is not a religion. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that there's there's more to, to Spinoza there. And right. I, I I would like to to dive into that because I think it it clarifies, it will clarify for me. A lot of the discussions taking place around here. Yeah, yeah, and it's also and with Spinoza, you kind of you have the similar problem that I presented in my talk, which is like, was Spinoza an atheist or was he very religious? <laughs> it's like, no, you have you have both of those things again with 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 him too. And I would, by the way, also say so. I'm not. I don't think this individual grasped the personalities of Spinoza and Nietzsche perfectly, but just for the sake of like, let's say perspectival knowledge, it's very nice to read Irvin Day Yalom's novels on both Spinoza and on Nietzsche. So I think the Spinoza problem is what he wrote partially about this uh, Nazi commander Rosenberg, who, you know, discovers Spinoza, but he's like, yeah, but he's a Jew. And then he's like, oh, but Goethe liked Spinoza. So, there must be something good about him. And then he starts reading Spinoza. So that's one part of the story. And the other part is Spinoza's life. Oh, you might've read it. I'm not sure. No, I but, haven't. Oh, okay. Yeah. But it, it, and, and so you get to know Spinoza's life a little bit and he is always about um, historical fiction. So he, like, I, I think he always says, Irvin Yalom does like, I like to write about what could have happened, but didn't precisely happen this way. So all of this could have happened, uh, which is also why in the Nietzsche novel, he, he writes about Nietzsche and mostly Nietzsche having therapy sessions from uh, Breuer, who was also very important in the psychoanalytic movement, who wasn't actually like his doctor. And then, so, and then that's um, 
alternated between Breuer then talking to Freud and being like, oh yeah, I have this really cool patient. Uh, Nietzsche is fascinating, but kind of a weird type, which didn't actually happen, but it all could have happened. Like it all works out chronologically. And it's this very nice way of perspectively getting into like their lives and what that what it must have been like for them even though again like i don't think like he's, he's not like a proper scholar on these individuals so he didn't know them like perfectly but he knew them well enough to just get you a proper feel for both of them um and spinoza i i've i've read parts of the theolo- theological political treatise and parts of the emendation of the intellect and parts of the ethics but never like a complete work so I've, i also have lots to learn there um yeah but i totally agree with you like I, th- I think it would be super interesting to look at the uh at the specifics of that because also like like for does like lectio divina on spinoza and and the you know like for him it's spinoza is really one of the one of the main figures for him in which he sees himself and through which he sees the world so i i want to know more about that right like and, and not not just because i want to get to know john better but also because i genuinely think like okay john is onto something but also even if john is not onto something it might be interesting to figure out what are the tensions as you say in this little corner so there's so much more do you know where people could start to read Spinoza? In terms of the the like, the, where would you begin to to like, understand his thought properly? Do you have uh, any idea? Yeah, so like, like a colleague of mine is a Spinoza expert, so okay. like I, I'm a bit self conscious now, like that. Uh, All good. But 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 I would say, um, it's, it's difficult to say, but I, I think the emendation of the intellect felt far more, um, yeah, just. A little bit more easy to read for me and mm-hmm. then I just read like a part of that on the emendation of the intellect then the ethics is very difficult it's like it's, it's extremely it's like it's almost like you're reading a geometrical work okay so it's the ethics but it's not precisely about ethics it's very much metaphysics and then it ends up being about ethics and epistemology and, and, and all that but it's a very precise work very dry but yeah. then, you know, Verveke talked to, um, what was her name? Claire Carlyle, who ends up arguing that that's precisely the book that shows the religious nature of Spinoza if you read it in a certain manner. So there's more for that, but not as a starting work. And the theological political treatise is really to look at, you know, how are we going to balance indeed uh, the the theological aspect of society with the the political aspects of society and therefore it's 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 actually filled with lots of biblical criticism so he is very critical of of many dogmas from the bible there which also my people are like he's an atheist and it, i think that's also fairly readable but you just have to be careful with that because it's like okay are, it, like what is he actually saying here and is it really so simple that he's an atheist here so i think from those three works i would start with the emendation of the intellect but honestly i i I'm at a loss for words. Like, I'm very happy that you share your perspective. Even though you're not an expert, I really appreciate it. Because I'd like to get to know Spinoza in the coming two, three weeks, let's say. I'm going to I'm gonna look at a little bit more up for you. On that yeah, update. please do. Please do. Because then I can ask some nice questions if it comes up. Yeah. Okay, that's great. I have one little bonus thing I'd like to discuss before we end off this chapter which Stefan emailed me, but do you guys have any last words on Nietzsche and Goethe specifically? Well, I just want to say like, I, w- I definitely want to keep talking, but not, not now, like the, the next time. Well, we uh, still could, if you'd like, I could, I could postpone this. Well, I, I, I also, suggest- no, 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 no. I, I mean like just, I want to keep in general. Sounds so. good. 
And actually, like, if we prolong this session too much, then, you know, like, I, I think we're now, like, at a good flow. So, Perfect. so I'm down for uh, finishing this soon, but just talking soon. And yeah. uh, so, Stefan, I'm curious if if, if, if you agree. No, but I, I agree, uh, especially since, okay, this was just top of my head. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a lot more that I have already digested of Goethe and a lot more that I've written down that I'm not aware of right now, but I know it's relevant. Yeah, yeah. So I would have to, you know, dive into that stuff again because a lot of this conversation triggered my internal Goethe fan already. It's like, okay, let's talk about. That's, <laughs> that's great. That's, that's, that's really good. That's, that's a good point to to you know you know maybe end this chapter yeah. then. Yeah. And, so, and I I would also add like that I also want to talk about you know Goethe like his his uh, like his writing about color and all that you know like i'm very yeah. interested in that too yes a very different level right yes. uh, and finally uh i, I suggested like before we uh, started recording to uh, lucas like maybe it would also be fun to just read uh, the sorrows of young werther because it's like a very short work and also discuss that maybe at some future oh, and it has one of it, it has some of the most beautiful passages I've yeah ever. Uh, if you look at at how he relates macrocosm and microcosm to each mm. other, right? Every, yeah. And and then that that's where uh, Leibniz's idea of the what's it called monad theory, really? Yeah, he he borrowed that from Leibniz and and included uh, that yeah. in the chapter right. of macrocosm and microcosm, and that's just that's a beautiful piece of art. So awesome. I think it re it's really worth reading. Yeah. By the way, as a fun fact, Leibniz also visited Spinoza in The Hague and in Leiden uh, because he was like, "What? what's this thinker on about? And he was very much inspired by it, but he took a different route. So this is all related. <laughs> yeah. Okay, amazing. Yeah, Luke, I, Luke, you, you said you wanted to finish it up with a bonus point? Yeah, a little bonus point because I asked Stefan if he had anything he'd like to talk about today. And he had one comment that I was very interesting, interested in. And I'll just read the quote, to quote Stefan. One issue that I find keeps recurring, though, is how unaware we are that, in brackets, while we come to appreciate Christianity as basic input-output system, is that correct, BIOS? Yeah, okay, good. Of Western modernity recently, again, thanks to Tom Holland, I find it fascinating that no one actually wonders how much and where our DNA has been reprogrammed due to enlightenment. Did you get that? I I would give Stefan the opportunity to elaborate and then you can yeah. respond. So, um, long story short, I'm reading Peter Gay's um, Enlightenment, um, the uh, Age of Modern Paganism, the creation of modern paganism. Um, it's it's to me it's one of the most fascinating books I've ever read point taken not not just about philosophy or in general but this the way he works and and the the meticulous work that went into that it's just astonishing if you look at his biographical essays at the end of that work it's like 50 60 70 pages just writing down where he took what from and which sources he used and it's not just you know doing a literature review it's much more intense than that and so I think he's the most compelling author on the history of enlightenment. And he goes a long way to explain that enlightenment, as it were, mainly from the, the French thinkers, mm -hmm. um, because the French thinkers were the most radical ones against state and against church. Uh, not so much the British ones. They were 
pretty content with with how state things and politics were going in general. Uh, although they also were kind of critical to religion, but not as direct as the, the French thinkers. And so I actually got the idea for this question or this this uh, observation when I was listening um, to your podcast with your friend. Mm -hmm. uh, what's his name? Tajira. Yeah, Tajira, right. And so he asked the question, yeah, maybe the Bible is just a value set. And that's where I directly found a link to Peter Gay because pre-enlightenment, no one would have thought about the idea that the Bible was simply a value set. Mm -hmm. So it something must have happened back then yeah. and then trans has, has been transported and continued in culture and society that today we have this as the first idea when we see the Bible or when we see any other religious text for that matter and see, well, someone wrote something in there that is meant to be seen as a moral, yeah, as, as just a kind of ethics and not to be taken as an ontology or an epistemology of how to view the reality that we live in. Yeah. And I found that just fascinating. And it thinks that it, it, I think it shows that enlightenment was so successful that we don't realize that yeah. we live in a post-enlightenment world, yeah. even though we still are Christians in, in, in a lot of senses. So that's something that maybe is left out of Tom Holland's dominion, is the insane influence that the Enlightenment had on modernity and culture in general, and contrast that to the influence that Christianity had, because yeah. it's not just that Christianity was receding because of Enlightenment. Yeah. I, I would also, like, this is why I actually think that uh, Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Christ series is so helpful, because, right, like, he, he goes, like, he, he visits each time period and, and each, like, not each, but many major thinkers in that time period or major traditions. And he shows, like, all of them are a piece of the puzzle, right? Yeah. Uh, and he and, and by doing so, he doesn't do, like, the normal thing where he says, like, but, you know, Christianity wasn't that important, you know? Like, he actually is like, no, Christianity was also super important. Just look at that yeah. and Augustine and then, and, and then Plotinus and then... Uh, um, where Plotinus before Augustine and then eventually Thomas Aquinas, you know, like, so it was super important. Uh, but, you know, then also we see indeed, like after that romanticism and the enlightenment and what comes about there. So that it needs mostly, I think the later episodes, Lucas, you might uh, have a more fresh mind on this, but it, like, it's like Descartes and it's, and mm -hmm. it's, little bit of Kant and it's Hegel and it's Marx and Nietzsche and Schopenhauer. He discussed those. Um, a little bit less so, by the way, some of the other uh, Enlightenment thinkers that you would think. Like he he discusses Kant very briefly. He discusses um, he discusses Hume, not at all. I think so. Like there are some Enlightenment thinkers that get no attention from me. He doesn't discuss Rousseau, who is both an Enlightenment thinker and an, an Enlightenment critic. So it's always kind of difficult to see that. Um, but I do think like so. I'm curious, Stefan. Like first of all, like have you? Have you list, listened to all of those episodes? Um, and 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 I'm also curious if so. Like, do you think it gives you a better understanding of what happened during the Enlightenment? I've I've listened to maybe a third of the lectures. Right. Um, at one point, I found it too difficult to follow. 
I would have enjoyed it as a book. Yeah, it's coming, he, right? He's gonna release a book, yeah. Because, because um, I I'm a very active reader, so I always have a pencil next to to mm. it, and you know, start scribbling notes, side notes, or you know, marking something, and then getting back to it. Just yesterday, I picked up Peter Gay again, and all I did was. I've read the first hundred pages and I wanted to continue, but what I did was look back at what I had marked and what I commented on. And then, then there was like one and a half hours later, I still hadn't. <laughs> so This is what happens when I start reading a book. So I would love to do that with, with the work of Aveki and there's so much video or talk available, but so little text. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's true. Which is to me personally a bit frustrating because I think the only thing was like the zombie apocalypse and that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like he's he's published tons of articles. Work, yeah, yeah, sure. But if you look at the the overarching story that he's or the, the narrative that he's creating, mm -hmm. his, um, uh, awakening from the meaning, meaning crisis series, that still has not been uh, distilled into one piece of. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> I would find I think that he, super helpful. Yeah. He he is. Uh indeed writing a book now and let me see i, th I think he was working on it with chris as well yeah and if i'm not mistaken yeah I actually found he at some point he set out to uh i think i think he said like you can now subscribe for the newsletter of of, of his new website and then you would get like an early copy so like of just of the like so, so, so i have the pdf file in front of me now but it's only the first 50 pages so you can read through that and, and, and it'll eventually be a work so uh I'm, i'll keep I'll, an eye out for it for yeah. me it was kind of a blessing because um aaron was like in our i don't know if it was in our family group chats or just to to us as siblings and my dad and stuff being like you have to you have to watch this 50 episode series and all of us kind of put it off like yeah at some point i'll give it a go and my sister, I remember, tried for a couple episodes and stuff. But if it wasn't for the video, I would have never started because I wasn't a reader when I was like a kid. So I think for, for some that helps. But uh, for me to really integrate it, I think the one piece would be extremely helpful as well. Yeah. yeah just, exactly. just for clarification for me, uh, how many siblings are you? <laughs> Go ahead. What is it? Uh, so there, there are six in total, uh, including me. So that, yeah, we're the six in total. Yeah. it's fun how uh, so uh, how many siblings do you have if you have any have two sisters uh two sisters two sisters a twin yeah. sister and a younger sister oh, yeah. and, and how, how many children do you have currently i have three kids oh yeah nice okay that's great that's great are you getting three more or is this <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> sorry i'm My parents they went for four I turned, I turned 40 this year so <laughs> oh yeah okay yeah, yeah, okay yeah. that's fair that's fair uh, no, my my parents went for four, I think. So, I I do yeah exactly like well they <laughs> they they went for four and then the last two came as extra extras just just like this to uh, to segue like this bonus point we're discussing at the moment about uh, <laughs> the importance of enlightenment exactly uh, I, I I just briefly like I I do think it's something that we can discuss a little bit more in depth next time but. One thing that I, I, I would say on the matter is like, I'm not sure if there's this just this one specific moment that ties to it, but it's definitely this overall rejection of tradition. And it sounds super, 
like but i mean it is in like the most radical sense so it's like if you read descartes meditations he starts off saying like you know like i have to take like everything that i know i like i can't take that for granted anymore so he is just introducing a, a completely different method not not just to religion because that's often how it's like simplistically taken to be like enlightenment is science uh, as opposed to religion it's like no no but it's also about new ways of of thinking that are far more important which i think pertains far more importantly to your question because then you get someone like Descartes who's just like we can do this in a different way like we can apply those methods that were so successful in science and see if we can get something of that in our thinking and then you know when it then enters our thinking because people then respond to Descartes they think he posed a problem that needs to be solved like a Spinoza like a Leibniz and then Hume and, and then eventually Kant and you get the whole rationalism and empiricism and them going against each other and that's something we could talk about later. I have to teach it all the time anyway. So, <laughs> but uh, uh, do you think was really there in, in Descartes? Because once he had this realization, he went to a chapel and prayed a, a, a hail mary. Yeah, I know, I know. But, but it, it, I mean, that's that's just so funny for someone who's so in doubt about everything that after he has realization goes off and says well thank god that you showed me <laughs> yeah but he he is super religious and for him it was like you know like so he has this whole existential aspect going on right like so like so he he has these these nightmares of like oh no like what what do i need to do so he has just bad dreams and that's why he starts writing the meditations to then indeed prove that god exists and the fun, the ironic thing is that what people take from it is like mm, that proof actually isn't so great, which I actually agree with. It isn't the best proof of God that we can probably find. By the way, finding proof for God is something I find a bit iffy in general, but that's uh, another topic altogether. Um, but they just take the first part of it, which is like, you know, let's just from epistem ep epistemological principles find whatever we can know, right? Uh, and that is just doomed to fail, but no one knows it yet. So th that's just starts coloring everything. And that's why we just try to focus on, okay, you know, all this extra qualitative stuff, like he even says it, like, you know, that's why Goethe on color is so relevant and I want to talk about it, but that qualitative stuff, that is just illusory. We shouldn't trust it. We should trust the principles of our mind. Like, in the sense that we can know quantity and width and depth and like, you know, and we have measurements for that. Like, that's really what's most important. Uh, and then you can also imagine that you'll look at a Bible story from that perspective and be like, get get rid of all that, you know, like just focus on the main thing. What what can we actually use yeah. from it still like today? And it's like, well, I guess it is a system of ethics, right? Because we have no ethics anymore. No one knows what's up or down. So let's just keep the ethics because that's just clear. It's like, do not kill. Everyone knows what that means. And it's like, yeah, but most of religion is actually far more ambiguous and it's not so simple as do not kill. And actually Christ precisely entered the scene to make the rules also ambiguous to be like, well, it's more about a transformation of the heart and not so much about a following a set of rules, Mr. Peterson, but that's, uh, anyway. <laughs> he did come to mind as you were speaking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. And this is really interesting because he, he, he was just in that video with his, with Tammy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Explaining the rosary. And that is such an interesting journey of hers. And you contrast that with him and you can see he's slightly in discomfort at times during that video right. because he doesn't know what's happening there. And, he, and then he tries to find words 
for mm. what's actually happening there and abstracting it and you know remaining totally in the propositional and she's totally participatory in that and he he, he cannot you know cross that bridge yet and it's 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 really funny to see yeah i know and and that's also like i actually have discussions with this uh about like with with with, with lucas about this matter often that it's also like peterson is kind of you know like he, he wouldn't say it, but he he's kind of this archetype of the era, you know. Like he fulfills a purpose as this yeah. this public persona almost, and he can't reconcile that with this inner transformation that is that is also clearly happening in, in in some ways. And maybe you know that's just the way things are and how they're well meant to be is a bit uh, teleological. But that's 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 just something that we need to accept. Just like you know, Goethe became kind of this you know, this figure of our imagination, but properly grounded in the historical figure, but then also that starts leading a life of its own. Same with Nietzsche, same with Jesus, by the way, like all these figures there, it's relevant. I'm not saying like uh, Peterson is on that level yet, <laughs> certainly not Jesus, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Okay, but let, let, let's, let's talk about this more next time. Einstein said that he had two heroes, mm. Jesus and Goethe. Really? Yeah. That's fascinating. <laughs> And he said his God was Spinoza's God, so yeah. I think uh, I think that's a wonderful place to to wrap it up. This for me has been like went so quick, and I feel honored to be able to sit in on what are for me two giants, as <laughs> in the sense that I that I learned so much. It's like a kid to a parent, you know, <laughs> or the the adult to the sage, in terms of of sheer knowledge and. Um, the connections you have together and the insights you get to together is really special. I'm excited to to watch again and to talk yeah, again as well. It's, this is so fractal, by the way, right? Because it's like Stefan and I, you know, like we're relating ourselves to like Nietzsche and, Go and Goethe. And then it's like you experience that to us. And then maybe someone listening to this is like, whoa, you know, like what I know. It's, like it's, <laughs> it's the beauty of the modern age for me. I like it. But, Thank but you Lucas, you've you've been amazing at facilitating this conversation and uh, steering it in a, a very nice direction and and preparing good questions also. And uh, Stefan, yeah, I just wanna like you know if you're already on this from the top of your head, I I wanna definitely know more. Like yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, imagine we were together in one bar and had a beer. <laughs> Oh, that, <laughs> that was that was that sixteen was, hours uh, later. Yeah, we're by the way, the uncensored version is going to be on Rumble later. No, <laughs> All right, guys, thank you so much. We'll plan it quickly, and uh, yeah, I'll I see you guys it. soon. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. Have a good night. Bye bye. Bye bye. Good night. bye, -bye.